Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. As always, you're with Darren Lim from the School of Politics and International Relations at the Australian National University and Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Hi again, Alan. Hey, Darren. Now, while it might be a bit much to call this an emergency episode, it is true that Alan and I were not planning on recording a news episode this week. But as much as we might wish to avoid the news, sometimes one has no choice. The last few weeks have seen a story that our little podcast about Australia and its place in the world cannot ignore. And I'm talking, of course, of the spat between Canberra and Beijing over the Australian government's calls for an inquiry into the early stages of the COVID-19 pandemic. So that will be our entire focus for today. So let's begin with some context and maybe a bit of a discussion of motives. Our story begins on the ABC News show Insiders on Sunday the 19th of April when Foreign Minister Maurice Payne first called for an independent review. She said the government wanted to know about the genesis of the virus, about approaches to dealing with it, about openness with which information was shared, about interactions with the WHO and other international leaders. She said a mechanism would need to be agreed upon, but it should not be conducted by the WHO. Beijing immediately rejected this idea, saying the basis of any inquiry was groundless. A few days later, Prime Minister Morrison said that Australia remained committed to an inquiry despite China's objections, calling this a, quote, difference of view. According to the Prime Minister, this was, quote, not pursued as an issue of criticism, it's pursued as an issue of importance for public health, end quote. He emphasised the importance of transparency in the way information is accessed early. It was reported that same week so we're talking following Payne's appearance on Insiders, that the Australian government was exploring the possibility of the UN appointing an independent investigator and that Morrison had spoken with the French and German leaders to lobby for their support, as well as Bill Gates. Reporting indicated the Prime Minister was also pushing for future investigators to be given powers similar to those of weapons inspectors. When Peter Harcher wrote a column the next weekend, so we're talking the 25th of April now, which I'm going to call the end of phase one of this episode, neither Germany nor France had openly expressed support for the move, and nor had Trump, I don't think, at this stage, but the UK and New Zealand had offered some words of support. Now, Alan, we should revisit what each of us said on our last episode, which was recorded after Payne's initial comments, but before the Prime Minister had weighed in substantially. You said the objectives outlined by the foreign minister were important, quote, not least in helping us prepare for the next pandemic, but that it needed agreement of all the major parties. And you cautioned that, quote, the objective cannot be to attribute blame. So, Alan, now speaking today, the 5th of May, with the benefit of hindsight, do you think that preparation for the next pandemic was the primary motive for the timing and form of Australia floating this proposal? And was the form and timing optimal? What I find hardest to understand about this is what the government actually wanted 
and Wyatt decided to float the idea in a few sentences on TV rather than, as you might have expected, through a serious speech or even a press release at minimum from the minister or the PM. Mm. The whole proposal, which boils down in the minister's words to a call for an independent and transparent review of the coronavirus and responses to it, has a feeling of being made up on the run. As I said last time, I think the government probably did think, and with good reason, that the world needed to understand how the pandemic came about and what we could learn about international responses, including from institutions like the WHO. But because there was no detailed explanation to fall back on, Canberra's initiative was interpreted by many, including in the media, as a way of holding China responsible Mm. for all that followed. So once Maurice Payne started to publicly compare Australia's objectives with mechanisms used in the past to deal with what you called egregious human rights issues, Mm. then the chances of China actually agreeing to participate in a positive way became vanishingly small. Mm. If the objective was to prepare for the next pandemic rather than to attribute responsibility to China, then it wasn't going to work. Although the PM obviously mentioned it in subsequent discussions with other leaders, I've heard Canberra diplomats talking about that, I've seen no reports that the government talked to or sought support from other governments in advance, let alone that it discussed its ideas with China. So for me, it's a reminder of the difference between foreign policy, the objective you want to achieve, and diplomacy, the mechanism by which you get there, and the dangers when those two things are not aligned. Mm. Well, that brings to mind your piece in Australian Foreign Affairs last year, Alan, on the China relationship, where you made that exact distinction between foreign policy and diplomacy. So I'll recommend that again to our listeners and post another link in case people need to read it again. Turning to what I said, last episode I called the move brilliant, That was my word, because I was focused at that time on Trump's move to suspend funding to the World Health Organization. And I was thinking about ways in which the U.S. could be brought back into the fold rather than walk away. And so I saw the request for an inquiry as a sort of off-ramp to diffuse tensions between the U.S. and China. The White House could make this demand, could back up Australia and maybe take the demand over itself. The Chinese could potentially fulfill it partially and everyone could claim that they had won. The mistake I made was in not anticipating China's response and the degree of sensitivity involved. Speaking today with the benefit of hindsight, of course, I ask myself, is putting pressure on China now when we are only part of the way through the crisis the best way of improving things for the next pandemic? And I think the answer is no, this is too sensitive for China. To use the words of China's ambassador to Australia, and don't worry, we'll get to what he said in more detail next, this has been perceived to be politically motivated and not so friendly, even hostile. Something to darken the mood inside of China. And that's whether or not we're talking about the Chinese government or its people. Again, we'll come to that in a minute. It's not surprising that the Chinese ambassador said Australia's call would, quote, disrupt international cooperation. And that's, of course, because China itself can do the disrupting if it wants to. So I see it as unlikely given, and I agree with you, Alan, that what's happened that Beijing will relent here. Which means if Australia's objective was purely about public health, both the timing and the execution seem to me to be far from optimal. 
But having said that, it's not hard to think of other objectives. One, create political momentum to reform the WHO, perhaps over PRC objections, and this is where the US comes in. Two, keep China on the defensive to push back against its mask diplomacy and perhaps remind those who admire the supposed effectiveness of its authoritarian model handling the crisis that China was still responsible for in the early stages. And three, for Australia, perhaps try to get out ahead of a political trend and create ourselves a leading and prominent role. So are these political motivations? I mean, I think they probably are. But I think it would be hard for Beijing to argue that its actions on the international stage during this crisis are not politically motivated as well. I think it's politics on all sides all the way down, I'm afraid. So if any of these were the goals, then the decision makes more sense, though I agree with subsequent criticism and with things that you've said, Alan, that it would have been more effective for the government to have lined up four or five major partners in advance who could have announced their support shortly after we made the proposal. Yeah. Okay, so that brings us to phase two of these events, and this begins one week after Minister Payne's comments on Sunday the 26th of April, where China's ambassador to Australia, Cheng Jingye, sat down with the Australian Financial Review's journalist Andrew Tillett for an interview. A transcript described as, quote, lightly edited for content and clarity, is on the embassy website and I encourage listeners to go and read it for themselves as I won't be able to capture everything here today. The ambassador was asked why China was so upset and I've already discussed some of those reasons and he sought to cast some doubt on whether the origin of the virus was indeed in Wuhan. Tillett pressed him on why an inquiry was a bad idea especially if the origins of the virus were uncertain as he said. And the ambassador emphasised his objection being based on its political motivations. Tillett then asked about possible consequences for Australia. And this is where Cheng made the comments that rocketed around Australia subsequently. He said the Chinese public is frustrated, dismayed and disappointed and might have second thoughts about doing business with Australia, which would have implications for education, tourism, wine and beef. These were the four sectors he mentioned. Tillett also asked if he was talking about a boycott, to which he replied, I hope not. The reaction in Australia, however, was swift. Both the foreign minister and opposition spokesperson Penny Wong pushed back. Payne said that the government rejected, quote, any suggestion that economic coercion is an appropriate response to a call for such assessment when what is needed is global cooperation, end quote. While Wong said that she hoped the China's ambassador was not directly threatening Australia with economic sanctions. Okay, with all that in mind, Alan, what did you read in the ambassador's comments? What message did you take away? I couldn't myself see in the ambassador's remarks anything that was particularly surprising. The job of an ambassador, one of them anyway, is to advocate for her or his country's position. Mm -hmm. He did that. The interpretation in parts of the media, I thought, was more fevered than the words in the transcript. I went to the transcript after seeing the press reports. Mm. Ambassador Cheng certainly issued warnings, though he couched them hypothetically, mm. about what Chinese consumers might do. But honestly, in the annals of international threats, it really doesn't rank. Mm. But you're the one who wrote a piece about this that was published on the ABC's website. So what did you make of it? I agree that, that Cheng used very careful language. 
But I also think that it was reasonable for the Australian government to interpret everything he said in total as somewhat threatening. The reason is because the Chinese government has, on previous occasions, deliberately taken actions to impose punishment on foreign economic interests, while claiming at the same time that these were simply the actions of disaffected Chinese consumers. One of the clearest examples came in 2017 when the government quietly banned all group tourism to South Korea over a security dispute, which caused a fall of 50% in tourism numbers from China to South Korea that year. And I'm talking 4 million tourists, so not a small amount. When South Korea complained at a particular WTO meeting, the Chinese representative blamed, quote, strong feelings of the general public. Another South Korean company, Lotte, had the majority of its supermarkets closed inside China in a short space of time because, supposedly, every individual store was in breach of health and safety regulations. So my point is this. It is entirely possible that Chinese consumers could independently choose to boycott Australian goods. Australian consumers can do this too. But when the government has a history of using economic punishments itself... And in a media environment inside China that is tightly controlled by the government, such that if you wanted to, any mention of the foreign minister's comments could probably be censored out of existence, it is reasonable to understand these words as a threat, even if the ambassador himself wasn't intending them as such. Reflecting on what you said, Alan, While in the annals of international threats, it might not rank very highly, I think because of China's history with economic punishments, The implication of what I'm saying, and maybe I'm fair, maybe I'm not, is that ambassadors have to be even more careful, and I'm talking about Chinese diplomats, have to be even more careful in how they advocate for their country's own interests. So what could the ambassador have said? Let me hazard a proposal. We value our mutually beneficial economic partnership with Australia. While I cannot speak for the independent actions of individuals, I can say that the government of China sees political and diplomatic questions as separate from economic ties, and while we may have our disagreements, we hope politics never spills into economics, because everyone loses when that happens. This is a principle I know Australia agrees with, and I think we both wish the Trump administration did too. So that's an example. Like Whether that would have been politically possible for the ambassador to say, I can't sit here and criticise him without giving some concrete ideas about what he should have said instead. You should have been a diplomat, Aaron. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think my argument does raise a separate question about how responsive diplomats need to be toward local sensitivities. Let's give the ambassador the benefit of the doubt for a minute and say that he had zero intention of being threatening and he just wanted to give warnings. Did he bear the burden of making sure his language could not be misunderstood or misconstrued? After all, Australia's economic relationship with China is a sensitive subject. And so if he wanted to avoid the allegation of coercion, do you think he should have been even more careful in how he discussed it? Well, fair enough. The responsibility of diplomats is to do their job for their own governments as well as they can, and mostly... This means that they'll be better off if they have a good understanding of the local environment and sensitivities and how their messages will be received. In the light of everything that's happened over the past year or so, you would think that Chinese diplomats in Canberra would be aware that anything 
they say locally is likely to be interpreted through a dark mm. lens in some quarters. Mm. But on the other hand, sometimes a diplomat will deliberately want to send a message that can be construed as insensitive. Australian diplomats in Beijing are regularly told that something Australia has done or said has hurt the feelings of the entire Chinese people. So diplomats don't always have to be diplomatic. Hmm. Well, one more question on this point, Alan. Let's make the opposite assumption and that it was intended as coercion. Is the Australian government's calling out of this behaviour public and explicit in its response the most effective tactic? I get a bit uncomfortable with coercion because it's one of those words that are thrown around incredibly loosely. Coercion is simply getting others to do what you want because they fear something worse if they don't. Mm -hmm. And it's a permanent feature of all relations between states. It's always better to have others give you what you want without having to expend power to achieve your ends. Donald Trump utilises it frequently. Indeed. With mixed effects. And that's because it doesn't always work. <clears throat> you alluded to Beijing's attempts to coerce South Korea, but South Korea didn't mm. budge. Mm. And the coercion didn't work. So I guess in answer to your question, if you are the coercee in any situation like this, calling it out is as good a tactic as any. Okay, okay. All right, well, the next event in phase two here was a phone call between DFAT Secretary Francis Adamson and Mr. Cheng that we know happened on the 27th of April. And we know this because both Trade Minister Simon Birmingham said so on Sabra Lane's ABC radio show the following day, but without, as I read the transcript of that interview, divulging any details whatsoever about the call. Nevertheless, in response to a written question from the media about whether the reported content of the call was true to fact, the Chinese embassy released a statement which gave detailed specifics about the content of the call and what Secretary Adamson had said. And I'll post a link both to the Trade Minister's interview and the embassy's press release in response. I'll also post a link to the media release from DFAT itself subsequently, which noted with regret the embassy's actions in divulging the content of the phone call and saying, quote, the department will not respond by itself breaching the long-standing diplomatic courtesies and professional practices to which it will continue to adhere. How foreign missions engage the Australian media are matters for those missions, end quote. So, Alan, I know this is a little inside baseball, but please beg my indulgence here. I love inside baseball, Darren. <laughs> well, it, it does seem like DFAT was a bit upset with this. Is this something that happens regularly and will it have any lasting impact? Well, as you said, reports on the Australian side suggesting that the secretary had given the ambassador a dressing down led the Chinese embassy to issue a statement purporting to show that the call had been calmer than reported. Mm. And that response in itself revealed a couple of things. First is that the Chinese are engaging in public diplomacy much more actively and tactically than they've done in the past. They were clearly irritated by the tone of reports that the ambassador had been hauled over the coals and the mm. ambassador may well have been trying to sort of protect himself with his bosses in 
Beijing as mm, well. Mm. But it was certainly an unusual and probably foolhardy thing to do. It suits both sides in the diplomatic dance to be able to claim that there is some special rule that prevents your talking publicly about what the other side has said to you in private conversation. It's a tactic that politicians use all, yes. all the time, you yes. know, when asked about this. It's a good tradition because it enables messages to be conveyed in appropriately tailored, frank, and nuanced ways, and it helps diplomats understand better what political pressures are shaping the position of their interlocutors. So it was certainly a measure of how pissed off the Chinese were that they did this, and the breach of a norm in this way is going to come at some cost to them. I reckon it'll be a fair while before any Australian official is willing to talk in anything other than the most formal terms with their Chinese counterparts. And that's simply going to add an additional constraint to any efforts to get the relationship back in any sort of working shape. Mm. Okay, well, capping off a wild few days, that same Tuesday billionaire mining magnate and lauded philanthropist Andrew Twiggy Forrest came to a press conference held by Health Minister Greg Hunt, to which he had been invited, but brought with him China's Victorian Consul General, who had not been invited. Forrest had secured 10 million COVID-19 tests using his contacts in China, and at this press conference invited the Consul General to speak, much, it seemed, to the Health Minister's surprise. Now, I'm less interested in that particular episode other than as representative, perhaps, of a lobbying effort being undertaken by Forrest and others in the business community, notably Kerry Stokes, who used the front page of his own newspaper in Western Australia to call on Prime Minister Morrison to, quote, quell China's anger over the inquiry. The arguments being made from the business community and others for Australia to patch things up with China... And I can only assume they mean sort of walking back on these calls for an inquiry. Bring to my mind one of my favourite pieces of IR scholarship, a 1945 book by Albert Hirschman, who talks about how countries can garner influence over other countries using economic relationships that build supportive business communities within those target states. These communities become, in effect, political constituencies who can then lobby on behalf of their economic partners for policies favourable to the trading partner's interests. So, were he alive today, I would think that Hirschman would predict that at least some of the voices inside Australia arguing for the government to make foreign policy decisions with a view to keeping China happy would be those who have economic interests in doing business with China. This, of course, says nothing about the merits of the argument being made. Hirschman's point is simply to identify a consistent pattern. So, Alan, my question for you is, and I'm talking generally, in a pluralist democratic system like ours, how much do the public voices and indeed the private lobbying activity of the business community influence the conduct of foreign policy, whether in enabling or constraining ways? Do I detect some sort of underlying sentiment in those comments that business interests in any given relationship are somehow less legitimate than other sorts of national interests such as security? I'm not sure whether you, you meant that, but it's certainly the impression you get from some of the commentary in Australia. And it is a reflection of how binary 
the debate about Australia's relations with China has become? My answer is that the public voices and private lobbying activities of the business community do need to influence the conduct of foreign policy in the same way as any other groups. Our economic relationship with China, whether trade or investment, will be critical to our recovery from the coronavirus recession. So I think it's a good thing Mm. for business to be arguing the case. Australia's relationship with Japan is a really good example, sort of contrary to what you were saying about Hirschman, I think. Senior business leaders helped critically in building the relationship with Japan through the late 20th century by developing personal ties at senior levels and helping Australian political leaders gain access and understanding. Indeed, one of them, Sir Russell Madigan of CRA, was actually one of my predecessors as national president of the AIIA. Now, there's an obvious caveat to all this, of course. The interests of a particular business at a given time are not always going to be the same as the national interest, but that's where the government comes in working out where to find that balance. What's your response to that, Darren? I think you make a good point about underlying sentiment. To be honest, it had never occurred to me before, since there are so many sources of influence on government policy worthy of study as an academic. You could name bureaucratic politics, you could name the military-industrial complex, you could think of populism, just to pick a few. And as a scholar, I don't think of any of them as being inherently positive or negative, just interesting. But what makes the Hirschman effect, if we'll call it that, particularly interesting to me is that it does offer a sort of a clear roadmap to countries, and this would apply to Australia as well, to build influence with other countries. But I have no intention of conveying an underlying negative sentiment, and so I'm glad to make that clear. But I have done some research into this, and I would say that the general trend is pretty strong that there is an inverse relationship between the influence of the business community over foreign and security policy and the salience of a given issue within the wider public community. So as soon as the public starts to pay attention to a foreign policy issue, especially if that issue relates to national security or foreign interference, the influence of the economic lobby tends to wane. To use Tony Abbott's immortal formulation, fear tends to trump greed, at least once people are paying attention. Well, look, again, I'd use Japan as a counterexample. In 1957, when Australia signed the Commerce Agreement with Japan, our first trade agreement with our wartime enemy, it was against the strong instincts of the Australian people for whom Japan, especially Japan, which we were helping to rebuild, Mm. continued to be seen as a threat. But the Menzies government, and particularly um, Jack McEwen and the Country Party, saw how important the Japanese market would be to the interests of Australia's primary producers, and they ploughed ahead with it. And later, of course, minerals and energy became the dominant element. And you can also see fainter parallels in Australia's Middle East policy in the late 20th century, where the interests of wheat suppliers were critical to the way we engaged with both Iran and Iraq. And of course, it took a Royal Commission into the (laughs) wheat board and UN sanctions to show some of the consequences of that later on. Yeah, well, I mean, I certainly concede my research is focused on the 21st century. But it does suggest in what I found that there is a political price to pay for privileging, and again, to be crude, greed over fear. 
again, once the public is paying attention. I'm curious, looking back at, at what Menzies was doing, why didn't his government pay a political price for this agreement with Japan in, in the late 50s? Well, Menzies himself was, uh, as I said, it was driven by uh, McEwen and the Country Party, and Menzies himself was cautious about it mm. precisely for those reasons. And they had to manage difficulties uh, when the Japanese Prime Minister Kishi visited at the end of that year, at the end of 57, several Labor politicians refused to meet him. But Japan was a growing market at a time when Britain was turning to Europe, the relationship was managed sensitively on both sides and trade surged. So within 10 years, Japan had passed Britain as Australia's largest export mm. market. So everyone felt well served by it. And of course, Japan continued to be part of the US alliance system. So there wasn't that dimension to it that we've got with uh, China. Yes, maybe there's a distinction there about historical animosity and the latent mistrust that comes from that versus sort of yeah. a more immediate set of concerns. Anyway, fascinating, Al. Thanks for that. Let's wrap up things here with a bit of a meta question. And this is a question we've discussed before, but we'll view it through the lens of these past week's events. One interesting feature of this particular debate, I think, if you look around the world, is that, and again, I'm generalizing here, but political security communities in many places seem to like the idea of an inquiry quite a lot, while health communities lean more towards seeing it as an unhelpful distraction, given that we are in the middle of this pandemic. So the question is, how do we create global public goods? And here I'm talking about knowledge and information on how to contain pandemics. How to create these public goods in a world where individual governments will not want to face criticism for their own policy responses? Moreover, we're also in a world without a hegemon, without a leader who has those strong interests in leading or at least in coordinating such efforts and when the security concerns are intruding into the public health domain. Uh, it's depressing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure about that clear division that you see between the security communities and the health communities. It gets back to defining what exactly the proposal yes, that it numbers, uh, is. Mm. Every international health professional I know would support the idea of working together to examine the lessons we can learn from the pandemic. Yeah, I guess they're more urgently aware of the need to put away differences while we search for a solution, whereas the national security folk, or some of them anyway, see this as part of a long-term geostrategic struggle and think that's the frame in which we should guard everything mm. that's going on. The leadership we are seeing in the world at present, things like the convening of the Coronavirus Global Response to National Pledging Conference, is coming from the Europeans and, interestingly, from non-state actors like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the World Bank. But the Americans are missing in action and the Chinese are keeping their heads down. And the problem is, of course, that neither the EU Commission nor the Gates Foundation, is well-structured to integrate those security and public health concerns. And you, Darren? Yeah. I mean, as I said, I don't think China can in any way agree to this kind of inquiry. It would be anathema to their model of political order. But I do wonder what happens once the rest of the world begins to get back on its feet. Will demands for an inquiry solidify further, or will the world just want to move on? I wonder whether the dividing line will mirror existing fault lines in geopolitics, with much of the rich world pushing hard, 
both because we want to know what happened, but also because we're keen to hold China to account, while much of the developing world may just want to move on with the recovery. I do wonder whether also the smarter play for Beijing would have been agreeing in principle to an inquiry, but then ensuring in the details that it had no teeth or it didn't threaten any of Beijing's domestic concerns. But this doesn't answer my question because I don't have a good one. For me, I ask, how do we make it in the interests of governments to support the generation of this knowledge, despite the costs to them? Given China's authoritarian system, the costs of genuine transparency will always be too high, I think. For the West, perhaps if there is near unanimity on the need for a robust inquiry, this kind of pressure could cause China to make concessions, perhaps in related areas like reforming the WHO, or even perhaps in joint action on increasing the resilience of supply chains. Interestingly, Twiggy Forrest said that the inquiry should wait until after the US election. And while I don't agree that any conditions should limit progress on this issue, I do think that a respected and effective United States is going to be essential to leading such a unified response. And that is, frankly, impossible to imagine under President Trump. For cooperation to happen, you've got to raise the political benefits or lower the political costs for any government to agree. But the problem here is that interests are directly opposed. Policies that bring political benefits to Western governments, like an inquiry, bring political costs to Beijing. So I'm also depressed about it all, Alan. Anyway, let's finish off the podcast here with some reading, listening and watching. What have you got for us this week? Absolutely nothing serious this week. I love heist movies and there's a terrific Spanish series on Netflix called Money Heist, complete with a master criminal called The Professor, which is a great way of taking your mind off the current reality, which is what we all need. (laughs) Well, Alan, as someone who never or rarely makes a serious recommendation, I'm going to continue with my trend. And while, as you say, we're here in lockdown, I just want to celebrate two remarkable moments in TV and film but more importantly, the two pieces of music that helped make them happen. The first is by Dustin O'Halloran, and it's called Arrival, which he composed for the Australian movie Lion. And it captures a moment of, of amazing emotion in that movie, and I'm sure most Australians will be familiar with this extraordinary story, but when the main character is, is reunited with his birth mother. And the second piece of music, which is by Raman Dejuadi, composed for the Game of Thrones series, it's called Light of the Seven, and it played in the final episode of season six. Arguably, I think, the most perfect 10-minute sequence of the entire series. Maybe not the most enjoyable. For me, that's always going to be the Battle of Hardhome. And a very disturbing sequence, but I think brilliantly put together. And the score, this track called Light of the Seven, I think contributes to the, the mood and the emotion and the stakes of the scene quite considerably. And I'd also note that Dijuati composed the music for the Battle of Winterfell in the final season, which is equally stunning. Can I just say, Darren, that social isolation hasn't been nearly long enough for me. I'm quite good at delayed gratification, and I still haven't seen the final series of Game of Thrones. And that was my plan for lockdown, but there's too much happening in the world. So I'll make do for the time being with the music of Raman Juwadi. And by the way, I don't know if you know the podcast Song Explorer, which is sort of 
way in which composers deconstruct their music. It's really interesting. But you can find a fascinating conversation on that uh, with Juwadi about the process of writing the theme music of the series. Excellent. Great. Well, thanks for that, Alan. All right, that's all for today's episode of Australia in the World. As always, we want to thank AAA intern Maddie Gordon for her help with research and audio editing. XC Chong for research support and Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. We'll talk to you again soon. <laughs>